Hi, my name is Russell Lee, and this is my writer's brain. premiere episode, we'll take a trip into the DC Extended Universe as I pitch a version that could have been. Here we are, my podcast. This has been a long time coming, folks, but now that we're here, I'm sure you'll love it. I first had the inkling for my own podcast in the early days of Kevin Smith's podcast, but I never really got that far. In recent years, I've been helping out with my bud slash director Dan Sanguinetti with his podcast, Film Rhapsody. Give it a listen. But there's nothing like having your own show. Whether anyone listens is another story, but first things first. I considered writing a long intro, introducing myself, taking a peek into what makes me tick, but there's plenty of time for that. Don't worry, I'll be sharing. But what you need to know about me is this. My name's Russell, I'm a writer, and have been for a very long time. I'm from a place in Australia called Canberra. It's a nothing little city of little consequence that almost everyone in Australia shits on, regardless of it being our national capital. And in the last few years, I've made some major steps towards a sustainable career as a writer, leading up to this year with my first film, Nightmare of Alice, ending production. In the next year, another two or three of my scripts are going before the camera, and as long as I can keep my sanity in check and my mouth shut, I might just make my late mother proud. So that's part of what this show is going to be about. But the other, and I might say bigger part of the show, is this. Going back to my childhood, the first signs that I was meant for a life of words was the shows I watched. I'd be glued to the television watching Knight Rider and The A-Team and Batman and V and Manimal and many, many others, and I'd find myself writing or rewriting said shows as I viewed them. Some natural-born instinct inside of me just popped out like a chest burster, and I seemed to know just how to craft a cool little tale. And while it took me a little longer to get where I am today, I'm proud to say that I'm finally here. So that's what I'm going to do with this show. I'm going to take films and TV shows I, and hopefully you, dig, and put my spin on them. See if I can improve on them, or in some cases, save them. Arrogant little fucker, aren't I? Basically, I'm going to pitch to you my version, and take you on a journey into the land of what if. Of course, at the end of the day, it's all just for fun. A purely academic exercise. I'll also talk about some of my experiences as an up-and-coming writer, and see where it takes us. So let's begin with our first episode. This week, we're taking a journey into the world of superheroes, and see if we can build a better DC Extended Universe by using Batman and the Joker as the central building blocks. It's 2016 and we're a few years removed from Man of Steel. Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice is heading into cinemas, with Suicide Squad not far behind. By the end of the year, we'll have new cinematic versions of Superman and Batman, along with the first portrayals of Wonder Woman, The Flash, Cyborg, and Aquaman on the big screen. Warner Brothers and DC are scrambling fast to build their own cinematic universe. 
Most would say they're moving too fast. But in their minds, they have no choice. They're falling far behind. By now, Marvel's already into their third phase. They've produced 14 films in just 18 years, two TV series, and three shows for their Defenders sub-universe on Netflix. In total, Marvel has amassed over $7 billion at the box office with characters most moviegoers have never heard of before. Marvel have managed to master the art of storytelling by both staying true to their comic book origins and not overloading new viewers with too much world building. On top of this, they've managed to do something that DC never even considered. They've managed to bring together superheroes and successfully cross them over in not one, but two Avengers movies. Marvel are kicking DC's ass, and it's clear to everyone that they've already won the war before DC can even decide if Superman would wear his underwear on the inside or out. And they're doing this with characters that no one outside of a comic book store have ever heard of. There's a good chance you know who Batman and Superman are without having read any comic books or seen any of their movies. But Iron Man, Hawkeye, Groot? Unlikely. So DC has to play catch-up, big time. When Marvel took six films to bring their Avengers together, DC are going to bring the Justice League together in just two. It's a risky move, many would say a creative failure, but the box office numbers say something different. In roughly the same amount of time, DC manages to pull in almost $6 billion with only half the amount of movies. It would seem that cinema goers want to see DC's more familiar characters over Marvel's, but DC is drawing more and more dissatisfaction from their audience. Fans will remember the massive uproar on the internet when Ben Affleck was cast as Batman. The headlines from cyborg actor Ray Fisher when he spoke out about unprofessional behaviour on the Justice League set. Unless I forget, Superman's baby mouth. In preparation for this episode, I sat down and rewatched the DCEU movies. I had low expectations. And if asked, I'd consider myself a DC fan over Marvel. I knew of Spider-Man and the Incredible Hulk growing up, but I never really read any of their comics. But that said, I wanted the DC movies to be awesome. How could they not be? They had Batman for bad sake. The rewatch was... okay. But with each movie, I would see holes in the storyline you can drive a Mack truck through. Moments or massive plot points that either annoyed me or flat out drove me nuts. How could DC make such horrendous creative decisions? The easiest answer is that the Marvel movies are made by people who know the characters inside and out, and not the usual Hollywood committee. Of course, with the release of Wonder Woman, Aquaman and the Shazam movies, the DCEU films became more enjoyable to watch. Characters were allowed to have fun and not be so fucking serious all the time. But with DC all but announcing an end to their universe and a return to standalone films, maybe the damage is beyond repair. But not if we go back to 2016 and make some changes. My improved DCEU grows out of a couple fan theories, ideas they came up with from promo shots or trailers, stuff that whipped up chat and excitement online, but ultimately went nowhere. But if you put the fan theories together and work up from them, we get a far superior cinematic universe. It starts like this. Have you heard the theory about Jared Leto's Joker? You know, the one from the 2016 Suicide Squad movie? The one we'll never see again? The one that divided fans more than the phrase, subverting expectations? The theory put simply is this. Before donning the makeup and becoming the clown prince of crime, Jared Leto's Joker was none other than Batman's trusted psychic Robin. Interesting theory, don't you think? It certainly piqued my writer's brain, and it had all the promise to be the fantastic start of the DCEU. What were the events that turned Robin into the Joker? How long has he been the Joker? And how could Batman defeat someone who knows all his moves? The story would take several films to tell, if done right. We'd get our first piece of the puzzle in Batman v Superman. It would further be developed later that year in Suicide Squad, 
We might even get our first real hint of who was behind the makeup in that film. And then it'll all come to a head in a standalone Batman film as the Cape Crusader faces off against his arch nemesis. All the pieces were there. In fact, they're still there as of 2019's Joker. All DC has to do is put them together. But let's be honest, for a studio so obsessed with creating their own cinematic universe, DC aren't very good at building one. But I still think it could work. The theory grew out of a scene in Batman v Superman. In it, we see Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne standing for a glass case in the Batcave. The case contains a defaced Robin costume. Written on the suit is a torn from the Joker. Joke's on you, Batman. There are even bullet holes in the suit which seem to match scars on Jared Leto's Joker. Now, I'm not a regular comic book reader, but I do have enough comic knowledge to know there have been several Robins over the years. Dick Grayson's the original Boy Wonder. He appeared in the 1960s TV series, in Batman Forever and Batman and Robin from the 90s, and the various incarnations of the Teen Titans. Eventually, Grayson went solo and took the name Nightwing, and the mantle passed to Jason Todd in the 1980s. And it's here that the theory starts to take shape. Apparently, Jason Todd was not well-liked by Bat fans, and when they were given the chance to vote on whether he lived or died, the call came in to kill the little sucker, and the Joker did the honours. Further Robins would follow, including Tim Drake, not long after Jason Todd's death. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. When Batman saw the defaced Robin suit in the Batman v Superman trailer, they knew the events of Jason Todd's death were part of Batflex's backstory. Of course, it was originally intended to be Dick Grayson that died and not Jason Todd, until someone clued Zack Snyder in. Coupled with the costume, another shot in the trailer all but clinched the theory. In it, Bruce Wayne receives a newspaper clipping, mocking the destruction of Wayne Tower from the beginning of the film. You let your family die, the note said. The handwriting looked very similar to Joker's on the Robin costume, as did the tone, so it must have come from the same source. And then, when we get to the film itself, there's a line spoken by Bruce Wayne to Alfred that for me seals the deal. 20 years in Gotham. How many good guys are left? How many stay that way? That one comment seems to imply that a hero turned villain somewhere along the way. Why not the boy Wonder? It now falls to us to theorise and begin to build a DCEU that could have been. What if the Joker never killed Jason Todd? What if he violently attacked him and left him for dead? What if Jason then hunted down and killed the Joker, but in his fragile mental state something snapped and he took on the Joker's identity? And that Joker is the Jared Leto Joker we see in Suicide Squad. I think it's a pretty cool theory, but that wasn't what DC had in mind. Instead we discover while the Joker did kill a Robin in the movie's backstory, the clippings were part of Lex Luthor's plot in the film. At least for once, it had nothing to do with real estate. Of course, the theory continued despite DC's lack of foresight. In Suicide Squad, we met a young soldier played by Scott Eastwood. People theorised he was actually the original Robin Dick Grayson sent undercover by Batman to keep an eye on the squad. Of course, Eastwood's character turned out to be a nobody, with barely any lines or personality. But how cool would it have been if they did go down this road? Of course... For all this to work, we need an original Joker to beat the shit out of Jason Todd in the first place and send him over the edge. And wouldn't you know it, we have one, in Joaquin Phoenix from the 2019 Joker film. Set decades before the events of the Batfleck films, Joker takes place in the 1980s, at a time when Bruce Wayne was still a child. So all the pieces are there for the theory to work. Joaquin Phoenix's Joker terrorises Gotham on and off for decades, until Bruce Wayne grows up and becomes Batman. They battle it out for several years, Long enough for Dick Grayson to grow up, long enough for him to have a falling out with his mentor, long enough for him to become Nightwing, and long enough for Batman to bring Jason Todd into the Batcave. Inexperienced, the second Robin faces off against the Joker and comes out on the losing side. 
He winds up in intensive care, maybe even in a coma, but he gets better. He escapes the hospital and tracks the Joker down. He wants revenge. To hell with Bruce Wayne's teachings. Batman's in pursuit, but he isn't quick enough to stop the boy Wonder from murdering the Joker. This is the last straw. His mind breaks. He paints a bloody smile on his face and begins to laugh madly before escaping into the night. Like the man that inspired him, Jason Todd's Joker causes chaos in Gotham. People die by his hands, lives are changed forever, but Batman finally manages to catch him and lock him away in Arkham Asylum. He hopes that one day the boy he knew can be saved, but it seems that Jason Todd is too far gone. In Arkham, Joker meets Dr. Quinzel. She falls under his spell and takes her place at his side as Harley Quinn. She helps him escape, and together they sow chaos throughout Gotham. Occasionally they run afoul of the bat, but Jason slash Joker knows all his moves and manages to evade him for years. From time to time he sends Batman little reminders that he's still out there, that he knows who's underneath the cowl, and that it's only a matter of time before he comes for Bruce. The game continues. It's too much fun for the Joker to stop playing with his old boss. Meanwhile, Batman has other things on his mind. The events of Man of Steel have taken place, and with it, the threat of the Superman has captured the Dark Knight's attention. He sets his sights on neutralizing this threat, and we get the events of Batman v Superman. But in our altered version of the film, the You Let Your Family Die note is for the new Joker. It doesn't change anything major in the film's story, it just serves to push the Cape Crusader deeper into his obsession with Superman. Taking the alien out now is even more important, because doing so will allow him to return to hunting down the Joker. With the death of Superman, Batman seeks out other metahumans to deal with the impending alien threat in Justice League. But Bruce Wayne hasn't forgotten his former pupil, not even for a moment. He needs a way to trap the Joker, a way he doesn't expect. So he reaches out to his old ward Dick Grayson, someone he hasn't spoken to in years, and certainly not during Jason Todd's time in the cave. And he asks him to get close to Jason's only weak spot, Harley Quinn. He does this by joining the Suicide Squad, placing himself as close to Harley Quinn as he can to keep an eye on her. After the events of Suicide Squad, the Joker breaks Harley out of prison. It seems that Bruce's plan has failed, but he's managed to plant a seed of doubt in their relationship, and in Birds of Prey and the fabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn, the Joker and Harley break up. Jason Todd is now all alone. He's vulnerable. Batman and Nightwing have a chance to stop him once and for all, and without Harley by his side, the Joker has no one he can trust. But after the breakup, Jason Todd has gone to ground. The dynamic duo work together to find him, but come up short. We don't need to see this, but this does explain their absence in Birds of Prey. We now find ourselves in a standalone Batflick movie. The Joker resurfaces, more dangerous than ever. The random acts of chaos he has caused in the past now pale in comparison to what he does. His acts are now more focused, less random, and far more deadly. This is a cinematic Joker we have never seen before. The movie begins with a young woman working in a library. She goes about a day unaware she's being watched and then heads home. She gets dressed for a date night and answers the door expecting her boyfriend, but she barely has the door open when a gun fires. It tears right through her body. We see the shot in all its gory glory. We need to see it. We need to feel it. It's going to drive everything forward. She falls to the ground bleeding out, and the gunman steps inside. I want you to give him a message from me. Did you get it? The Joker laughs and disappears back into the night as sirens close on the location. At the hospital, we learn the woman is Barbara Gordon, daughter of Commissioner Gordon. And while she'll live, she'll never walk again. The Joker's message has been received. 
It's on. We might as well have Jenna Malone play the role of Barbara Gordon. After all, fans theorised that her waste of a character in Batman v Superman was indeed her, so why don't we just make it official? Through flashbacks, we learned that Barbara was Batgirl, and that she continued to work with Batman after Dick Grayson went solo. She formed a close bond with Jason Todd as he joined the team, and only retired from crime fighting after he killed the original Joker. Because of Barbara's attack, Nightwing is now on the warpath. He's going to do what Batman has been unable to do and kill the Joker once and for all. He and Barbara have been on and off since they were kids. In fact, things had started getting so serious, he was planning to marry her. Nightwing manages to track Jason Todd down, and a vicious battle takes place. At the same time, Batman is rushing to intercept the two Robins, but like before, he isn't fast enough. He finds Nightwing barely alive, and as Bruce Wayne stands over yet another Robin in a coma, he can't help but wonder if he is looking at his next mortal enemy. Joker continues to come after Batman's allies. Alfred, Lucius Fox, Gordon, the big names live, but they're all taken off the board in some way or form. Batman is now working alone for the first time in his life. It all works to drive him to the very edge. His methods become more brutal than those we saw in Batman v Superman, and he stops playing by his rules. Batman and Joker aren't going to stop until one of them is dead. Throughout the movie we see a teenage boy popping up from time to time, but we're uncertain of who he is. It'd be great if this boy could appear in the previous films as well, but let's assume we only have this one film to establish him. We see him grow up in the shadow of Batman's adventures, witness the death of Dick Grayson's family, and even some of the key events that made Jason Todd into the Joker. He finally comes into play with Alfred's death. As I said, most of the big names survived Joker's wrath, but for a large chunk of the movie we believe that Alfred was the one big name that didn't. Of course, this isn't the case. In a scene playing homage to Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight movie, the Joker manages to get his hands on Alfred. The old man tries reasoning with the boy he knew, but Jason Todd has fallen so deep into his madness that his old name means nothing to him now. Batman rushes to save his father figure, but like Barbara, Dick and Jason years earlier, he's not quick enough. The building he's being held in explodes before a helpless Batman. The Joker is making a point that Bruce has grown too old, too slow and too soft that nothing he does is enough to stop his former pupil. And worse yet, Bruce is starting to believe it too. Later in the film we find ourselves in a sudden trippy flashback. We quickly discover the flashback as a dream of Alfred being captured and almost dying, told from the old man's point of view. The last thing we see in the flashback is the teenage boy coming to his rescue before the Big Bang. Alfred comes awake. The boy has been taking care of him. He couldn't risk taking Alfred to the hospital. It's gotten crazy out there, and Batman has stopped responding to the bat signal. Alfred knows that this means Bruce has reached the end of his rope, and he asks the boy for his help. At the same time, Batman arms up for his final battle with the Joker. He equips himself with weapons the kind we have never seen Batman use in the film before. These weapons are designed for one thing and one thing only, to kill the Joker. And if Batman must die to end the threat of the Joker once and for all, so be it. He's left messages for Dick and Barbara should this happen. Alfred and the boy fight their way to Wayne Manor. The boy has some mad skills, but Bruce is long gone by the time they get there. Alfred tries ridding himself of the boy, but he's taken a liking to the old man and refuses to leave his side. Alfred is forced to trust him with the secret of the Batcave, but the boy isn't surprised. He's been able to put together the Bruce Wayne was Batman long ago. I mean, who else could afford all those wonderful toys? Alfred finds Bruce's message on the Bat computer. There's even one there for the butler. In it, Bruce hopes that somehow Alfred was still alive, 
but in his heart of hearts, he knows he isn't. He speaks with sorrow about all he's lost. It's clear that even surviving this, Bruce Wayne is a broken man and may never be able to recover. He's all alone, Alfred remarks. But he doesn't have to be, the boy replies. Alfred looks over at the teenager. He's standing before Jason Todd's old Robin suit. They exchange a look, and the boy smashes the case open. We're now at the big battle between Batman and the Joker. Mr. J has alerted the media. He wants as big an audience as he can get. Now, this is as good a place to throw in a few cameos. Harley, members of the Justice League, hell, even a few members of the Rogues Gallery we get to meet in the DCEU. We get the usual taunts from the Joker, stuff that would usually get a rise out of him, but Batman is laser-focused on taking his pupil-turned-nemesis down. An epic battle takes place. Blood, explosions. Think Superman vs. Zod, but more grounded, more human. People watch on the television as the fight continues. Wonder Woman even suits up, ordering the rest of the Justice League to Gotham. She can see that while Batman has the upper hand, he's not going to stop. There's no Martha moment coming this time. Batman has the Joker where he wants him. The next move would be the Bat's final one, to kill the Joker and end this whole mess once and for all. But he can't do it. Behind the white skin, all you can see now is the boy he took in. The boy who trusted him. The boy he's now decided to kill. Beyond that, he sees his parents and all the people he has failed to save over the years. In this one moment, all Batman can see is every one of his failures. And he breaks. This gives the Joker the opportunity he needs. And he begins to strike at the Dark Knight. But Bruce is so lost in this moment he can barely defend himself. The Joker stands over a broken bat and is about to kill him when the roar of a motorbike reaches his ears. Out of the night, the boy that saved Alfred launches off the bike, now dressed in Jason Todd's Robin suit. And it's in this moment that Tim Drake becomes the third Robin. They begin to fight. The second Robin turned Joker against the new boy Wonder. They're evenly matched, and it's a real head spinner for Bruce seeing Jason as a Joker fighting against someone in Jason's old Robin costume. Robin tries to rally Bruce, Tell him that he's not alone, that Alfred's alive, but nothing seems to get through. It's only when the Joker gets the upper hand on Robin that Bruce manages to regain his marbles and put Jason Todd down. No Robin will die tonight. Batman eyes the Tim Drake Robin and then takes his hand. A new dynamic duo is born. Some time has passed and we're now at the wedding of Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson. They tie the knot. Barbara is now wheelchair bound. Bruce confesses later in the Batcave that he's not sure how much longer he can do this, that the time may come that another must take on the mantle of the Batman, and for now he needs some time away from Gotham. Dick promises to watch over the old city while Bruce is gone, and to train the new Robin. We also see the fate of Jason Todd, locked up in yet another prison. He promises the guards that he'll break out and bathe in their blood, but as the camera pulls out we see the prison is in orbit of the Earth. Escape won't be easy. Bruce boards his jet and flies out of Gotham, as Dick and Tim head out to fight crime as Nightwing and Robin. Barbara, now calling herself Oracle, watches over them from the cave. As all this is happening, an old homeless man looks up into the sky as the bat signal comes to life. He watches it for a moment, almost trying to remember something, and then he begins to laugh. While we don't specifically say so, we have planted a seed for future films, hinting that the original Joker may still be alive. The last thing we see is Bruce Wayne looking out the window of his plane as Gotham grows smaller. The bat signal reaches out into the nighttime sky, calling him home. 
one day, Batman will return. And that brings us to the end of The Great What If. So what do you think? Could a multi-movie story have worked better in building up the DCU than the choices that were made? Following on from this movie, we would have gotten more standalone films, including a Nightwing and Robin movie, before Batman returned home. Becoming Batman again would be the big storyline after this movie, and ultimately it would have tied into the return of Joaquin Phoenix's older and more demented Joker. Of course, it all becomes a moot point with the release of next year's The Batman film, where the Batman story will be once again rebooted. Why fix something when you just start over from scratch again? Tell a safe origin story, because we love those. For me, as both a writer and film buff, it's baffling to think that hundreds of millions of dollars can be spent on something when the script isn't right. That after all these years, Hollywood still doesn't understand that writing by committee never works. Writing a script is the easiest and cheapest part of making a movie. But as long as the film makes a profit, who cares if it's a creative void? When you think about it, it's kind of sad when fan theories end up being more entertaining than what the committee comes up with. But if this version of Batman doesn't work, that's okay. We can always look forward to yet another reboot in the future. I'm Russell Lee, and this is my writer's brain.